Welcome to the Football Fun Factory Podcast. And I'm joined on the podcast today by former Coventry, MK Dons, Oldham Athletic, uh, Brentford centre-forward Robbie Simpson. There's a lot of other clubs in there as well. He's the founder of LAPS, which is Life After Professional Sport. Um, and he's also the manager of Chelmsford City. Really looking forward to this one. Robbie Simpson, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? Yeah, thank God you didn't list all them clubs because we've only got 45 minutes. So uh... <laughs> Yeah, I did cut it short. I've left some big ones out, actually. Huddersfield's probably the main one. But yeah, we would have been here for a while. Um, Robbie, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Your career is one that is really intriguing to not only myself, but I'm sure it's going to be of interest to a lot of people watching this, particularly with what you've gone on to achieve, where you started and sort of what you're doing now. Just take me back a little bit. Where did it all begin for you? Where did this passion for, for football come from? Um, from when I was a young age, really, my local club, I grew up in Nebworth. Um, my dad was like the chairman of the local club. And yeah, I started playing from three years old, really. I've got an older brother who, who played, so I was always playing with him and his, his schoolmates and yeah, that's where the passion for football came from, really. I was just down the park. We we lived a walk away, literally a minute walk away from the rec, recreational grounds that the, that the football club played at. So literally after school, I'd come in, <laughs> run down the rec, stay there till my mum come and drag me down back for dinner. And then I'd beg to go back down afterwards, but she'd never let me. <laughs> but yeah, this, from a very, as soon as... As early as I can remember, really, I was I was playing football in every single spare minute of my time. Yeah, and that that kind of led to you eventually joining Norwich at quite a young age. I think you were you were nine, weren't you, when you first went over there? What, what was the um, the experience like for you within that system? I mean, Norwich, even sort of back then, were always considered one of the top academies. How, how do you look back on your experience over there? What was that like for you? It was amazing, really. Like you say, Norwich at the time were probably the best academy I remember we had when they changed from what they had center of excellence into academies um I played in a an academy showcase game and it was Norwich against Man United um at Carrow Road and that was to like kickstart everyone jumping on board with these academies so Norwich were in really high regard um in that res- in, in that respect in terms of youth setups and stuff so it was an it was an amazing club I First of all, I went to the Centre of Excellence that was in Potter's Bar, which was near where I lived. Um, and then there was also a, a Norwich Centre of Excellence. So there was two sort of Centre of Excellence. There's always a bit of rivalry between the two, actually. Yeah. Um, and then when it became an academy, they basically just had one team, not two. So the, the best from each got selected and we'd have to go up and spend half terms up in Norwich and go up and train every now and again. Um, so a lot of miles for my dad in the car, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was it was great. Um, like I say, I joined at a young age. Uh, yeah, it didn't it didn't end how I wanted it to, I guess. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to hammer them, but basically, I was there from nine till sixteen, and I just got a letter through the post saying I wasn't going to get a scholarship. Which was which was a bit a bit hard to take. Um, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I remember crying in my bedroom actually when I got the letter through. But deep down, I knew even if I got offered a, a scholarship, I was kind of borderline. I think to get one or not get one. Yeah. Um, but even if I got offered one, I don't think I would have taken it uh, purely for educational reasons. Um, really, my my mum wanted me to continue with my education always drummed into me that I was never going to be a footballer. <laughs> I was never good enough and I need to have my education. And I'd seen my older brothers and sisters go to university and come back at weekends or come back at half terms. And it just seemed like they were absolutely loving life. And I always thought, oh yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to do that. Yeah. Um, no, it's yeah. a sensible sort of mindset to have. I mean, coming towards the end of that, that journey at Norwich then, how did that affect you kind of mentally? Did, was that a bit of a shock to your confidence or did it kind of motivate you to, to go and prove people wrong, so to speak? A bit of both, I think. I think it, big confidence kicking the teeth. I think that was probably the first time I'd ever felt rejection because um, playing, 
playing for Nebworth back young. I was always playing in older age groups. And then at school, I was always kind of considered the best player. Um, so that was my first real taste of rejection, I guess. And it, it hurt and knocked my confidence a lot. Um, but then I moved to uh, Cambridge City, um, as you well know, as you were there as well. And I don't know, really. It's just my confidence soon came back. Um, and, you know, within within five months, I think, of being at Cambridge City in a, as a sort of a first-year youth team, I was training with the first team and playing with the first team. So the confidence soon came back and, um, yeah, went on from there, really. And what was it about Cambridge City that attracted you? I mean, obviously, the education side of things is something that you said was of paramount importance. But was there anything else about Cambridge City that sort of drew you to the club? Because I would imagine you'd have had offers to sort of go here, there and everywhere around that, that kind of time. Yeah, I mean, education played a big part because I was able to do my A-levels, which kept my mum happy. <laughs> and... Um, there was a few players in the year above me at Norwich who got released and went to Cambridge City. So there was Ryan Jenner, Ricky Doyle, um, all from around my way as well. And they they went to Cambridge City and they as soon as they knew I got released, they were on the phone um, telling me to come to Cambridge City. And a big pull of it as well was actually leaving home. Um, like I said, I saw my brothers and sisters off at university, leaving home, going to live in their lives. A, a big pull for me was moving out of home and experiencing life and trying to be independent as such in that way. And um, yeah, I thought, I thought that was a really valuable life lesson, I guess. And I, I wanted to not necessarily, I'm not saying my mum and dad, I hate my mum and dad. But. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah that, that kind of yeah. Um, being an individual and going to a place where you can really immerse yourself in kind of being a footballer, I suppose is one of the main draws. Somebody who's come up, in pretty much every podcast that we've done, because everybody's played for, for Cambridge City and Cambridge United, will be someone that you know very, very well. Uh, Jez George used to be the, the sort of youth team manager, I would say, at Cambridge United and has been the first team manager, worked at sort of chief exec level. He's now over at Lincoln. Talk to me a little bit about Jez's influence on, on yourself as a person and you as a, a footballer. How important was he in, in that first kind of step in your journey? I oh, was... It was very important. I mean, even though Ryan Jenner and Ricky Dole were telling me to come to Cambridge City and the education was there and the, um, you know, I was able to move home, uh, leave home and, and experience that, without, without speaking to Jez and getting a feel from him that he was really out for the boys' best interests and without Jez meeting my mum and dad and them trusting him to he'll look after me while I'm away from them, Without that, then I wouldn't have I wouldn't have joined Cambridge City, and um, I say I still speak to him regularly today because he, he's still doing some great work. And I think um, a lot of people don't actually see a lot of the work that he does, um, like the fundraising he did for for us as um, as youth team players to be able to go on tours and have good kit even and little things like now I know because I'm a manager I know sort of like the costs of things and the yeah. amount of fundraising he did to to be able to supply us with um probably the best youth setup outside of the professional game I would say at the time for him to be able to do that and the work that he put into that was was amazing and um yeah I think I think everybody who's played under him um can can say the same and that as a big thank you to him yeah, I think so. I think alongside what you, you've said there, just to echo those kind of sentiments, was the work that he did on the pitch, off it with the fundraising, but also the the kind of life skills that he taught young people. So, you know, we were quite academically uh, gifted, I would say, at, at younger ages. I could have easily and probably would have just coasted along and got medium results and, and Jez just wouldn't accept that. And I think you know, I always had to get a distinction in every single topic or I wasn't going to train and I wasn't going to play in games. <laughs> and I think that's such an important life lesson to sort of help. That really helped drive me later on in my career outside of football. Was that the same for you with, with Jez? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when, uh, when I signed for Cambridge City, it was David Batch as well. He was like the academy coach as such. And, and then obviously there was Jez alongside him and both of them together were 
kind of kind of like a dream team really to get the best out of you like you say on the pitch and off it and it's all about like you say not not settling for being mediocre like if you do I don't know if it gives an analogy of a of a bleep test of what it was back when everyone did yeah. the bleep test it was it was when you got to that level 12 and you think right that's that's kind of a good enough score yeah. and there's other people drop out so I could drop out here and it'll be fine but it's that little bit of mental toughness I guess to say no I'm going to be the best I can be and I'm going to go until I can't go anymore it's not taking the easy option and that's what they instilled in all the young players from from the moment that they met them really and it's yeah, so yeah that's it's such a great them. example with the bleep test because that's actually the first time I ever went on tour with Jez I did exactly what you just said I got to level 12 started <laughs> looking around and thinking I'm going to drop out in a minute because that was my mentality I was a bit of a cheat and I would try and get away with it. And Jez just saw straight through it. I came and sat down and he just went mad. He was just like, that is completely unacceptable what you've just done. Um, so yeah. that's such a good example. So as you're coming through at Cambridge City, you obviously you broke into the first team at quite a young age. How important was it for you that you were playing against men at that kind of time rather than in traditional youth team kind of fixtures? Yeah, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, it was the best thing that I ever did for my development. Um, I just, I thought that obviously I'd been at Norwich from such a young age. Technically, I was, I was fine. Um, and I would, I would keep improving, obviously, just naturally. But the big leap in the development was playing men's football, without a doubt. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about whether the under 23 leagues are actually beneficial or not to the players. Um, in some aspects, obviously they are, but um, I think playing men's football is a big stage in my career that really boosted my development and made me become a miles, miles better player. And um, I think it's a big factor in the reason why I was able to, to jump back up into, into a professional club later down the line. And just whilst we're on that then, so Cambridge City, you, you, I think your goal record there was around about one in three, which, you know, for a young player is, is very impressive. The move to Cambridge United came up. Um, I would say probably back then, that's quite a big step up, wasn't it? Going from Conference South up into the conference. How did you adjust? Because I remember sort of looking back and you went on an amazing run of scoring from around about Christmas. I remember you scoring away at Weymouth and then it just kind of spiralled from there and you, you really hit form. Did you struggle to start with or what, what was the, the sort of move like for you initially? Yeah, a bit. It was, um, it, it was weird because I was still at university. Um, so signing for a professional club, but not being able to train every day with the rest of the lads because I was, I'm very fortunate that Cambridge United allowed me to finish the last year of my degree and and they came up to Loughborough actually and, and had a look around and watched a training session. And um, they, I can't thank them enough for allowing me to stay and train with, with Loughborough during the week and then essentially just come back on Saturdays and play matches. <laughs> Score a hat-trick and go back. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the, uh, early on, obviously, yeah, it's a jump up in a jump up in level. I think the team was struggling. Um, Obviously, Rob Newman at the time it ended up um, ended up parting ways, and yeah, it was it, it was weird because um, it was such an exciting time to step up to a new level. And then, like I said, it, I didn't really feel like I was a professional footballer because of being at university still. And then, obviously, the team struggling. It was um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was an ideal start to a professional football career. Um, and I had an injury as well. I remember, I think it was against Stevenage. I got like, scissor tackled and done my medial. So I was out for two months with that. And mm. actually came back um, just before that game. You said where I scored and then went on a run. So, um, yeah, I think something just probably just clicked. When I came back from injury, I was more settled and um, something just clicked and... I couldn't stop scoring for the rest of that season. Yeah, I mean, it, it was remarkable to watch. I think a big part of it, which certainly helped, was that Jimmy Quinn set us up with a certain way of playing. We had new players come in, and obviously you and Chile really um, really hit it off playing up front together. Um, confidence is such an important thing for a centre-forward. What was it about that season that kind of helped you switch into another gear? And it seemed like 
every week you were you were just banging goals in. What happened that season? Do you know what, Jim? Jim, it's a good point about Jimmy Quinn. He was the first person I think that ever taught me position specific movement and stuff. And he used to be a centre forward himself and played for Northern Ireland and stuff. And it was the first time someone had ever like taken the time out away from the group and done some real one-on-one coaching on movement, not necessarily finishing because everyone does finishing, Um, but it was more movement and where to be. And he had a big thing about me in particular and the way he wanted to play and me in particular sort of just lurking around the far post, always trying to get myself to the far post. Um, And um, one second, I was trying to call me. Um, Sorry, I'm back now. Uh, Yeah, and get myself to the far post, and that was just that was just a trigger, I guess. Um, and then obviously, when you when you try and implement that, and it works in the first game, suddenly, like you say, suddenly as you believe more in what Jimmy Quinn's telling you, you believe more in yourself because it's working. And um, yes, yeah, like I say, it's it's hard to pinpoint. Like I said, confidence is is massive, especially with a striker. Um, and I just felt like if I was going to get a chance, I knew I was going to score. And I definitely haven't felt that <laughs> for like consistently throughout my career. But just at that time, I just knew I was going to score every week. And I was walking out, walking out the tunnel with my chest out, just knowing that I was going to score. And it's um, yes, it's a good feeling to have when you're in that zone as a striker. Yeah, it was for us as sort of young players coming through, particularly myself, having followed the almost the exact same journey as yourself. It was brilliant just to see you come, not sort of out of your shell, but to to really establish yourself at that kind of level. Because I think there was a lot of, there were obviously clubs watching you around that kind of time. Did that start to affect you as a young player as we got towards the end of the season? There was a lot of speculation. How did you cope with, with that? Uh... Good question. I, I don't know, really. I, I I think once I found out that clubs were looking, it gave me even more confidence, um, really, rather than, rather than, I don't know, some people might have thought I'm going to sack it off because I knew I was getting a move. It actually gave me more confidence and, and that, that helped the team even more. And we, we were still in a little bit of a relegation battle. So that, um, that sort of it inspired me as well because I knew that, um, if we were to get relegated, the whole youth setup would have gone. Um, and um, I remember Jez actually pulling me to the side and not necessarily putting pressure on me, it, but he basically said that we, we've been told that if we get relegated, the whole youth team's going to go and people are going to lose their jobs. And, and they were people that meant a lot to me and that have helped me a lot up to that stage. So I wanted to do my very best for them and, and for the club. Um, and I think the club probably might have folded if we got relegated as well. So yeah. it was huge. It, it, it was huge that we stayed up. So there was no, there was no time to be selfish, really. It was just time to think about, think about the club and make sure we stayed up. Yeah. And, and coming towards the end of that season, then obviously there was a lot of interest in you. You eventually moved a brilliant move over to Coventry City. Um, what was it about Coventry that attracted you? Because I can imagine you would have had a couple of options around that time. What was it that really sort of sold that that football club to you? Um, the championship. So there was there was quite a few League One and League Two clubs, um, uh, but I kind of had a choice in the end between Leicester and Coventry. And Leicester at the time didn't actually have a manager. It was, it was Milan Mandarich that was offering me deals, and that didn't quite sit right with me. You got off to a really good start, didn't you, at Coventry? You scored on your debut against Notts County in 2007. Did that sort of allow you to go and hit the ground running? Yeah, I'll be honest. I went there and I didn't really expect to play. I expect to sign there, do pre-season, and then potentially get loaned out to a League One or League Two club. Um, but yeah, he threw me in in a, in a Carling Cup game, as it was back then, against Notts County. And I scored and played really well. Um, and then, yeah, just... From then on, I was in the squads and living the dream, really. I'd graduated in the July, signed for Coventry in the July and and then started to play straight away and ended up making my full debut 
um, in the Carling Cup again away at Old Trafford. That's so, the game I was going to talk to you about next. Because um, obviously that, that must have been massive. I mean, when you found out you were starting in that game, what were the emotions like? So I remember you used to get a little bit nervous before games, didn't you? Because I can remember you being a bit nervous when we played Histon in a local, remember that local friendly cup. So what was it like for your Old Trafford? Um, yeah, I got, I got nervous. <laughs> it was weird. We played, we played Ipswich on Sky on the Sunday and I came on and um, played really, really well when I came on. We lost the game. Um, but we trained on the Monday because we were playing Man U on the Wednesday. Trained on the Monday and halfway through the session, Ian Dowie pulls me over and just said, you're starting Wednesday. So, and then like sent me back to join in the rest, rest of the session. And I was the worst player ever in the rest of that session because I was just... <laughs> <laughs> the emotions of what he's just told me was, was mental. So immediately, soon, I couldn't wait. As soon as training finished, I ran in, got my phone, rang on my family. All of them are Man United fans, so rang all of them, and then obviously they they then spread spread the news like wildfire. And I'm getting texts saying, "Can you get me tickets? Can you get me tickets?" <laughs> Probably should have left it a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ended up getting about fifty tickets for that game. And I remember looking back at the highlights because it was something that a lot of people that had played with you were, were kind of really keen on on watching. Um, from memory, you kind of played wide right in that game. I remember you playing quite well. You were really dynamic, showed your athleticism. How do you feel like you got on during the game? Did you have to ease yourself into it or what was it like on the day? Do you know what? In the warm-up, I was, I was horrific. Like, so <laughs> nervous. Um, couldn't, literally didn't pass to my own team in the keep ball. I was horrendous. But then as soon as the game started, I think I, think I just made a tackle on Nanny. And um, that just sort of settled my nerves. I just immediately made a tackle on the nanny. That settled my nerves. Got a big cheer from the fans. A few well done from the teammates. And then that was me. I was settled. And um, yeah, I played white right. We played like a 4-3-3. Four, four, three, three. And one of the tactics was just to hit diagonal balls to me to win in the air. Um, I think I started against I started against Danny Simpson that game. And then... They, they soon shifted Johnny Evans out to try and beat me in the air. And then, remember the first header against Johnny Evans, I, I actually elbowed him in the face and he went down and had to go off. And then, <laughs> um, and then they brought John O'Shea on me. And to be fair to John O'Shea, he won most of the headers after that. But yeah, it was, it was, it was an amazing game to be part of. They had, they had a good team and obviously it's Manchester United away at Old Trafford and that you don't get much bigger than that, especially at that time. Um, so to beat them as well was just something else, really. Yeah, I was going to say, did you get a little bit starstruck when you're in the tunnel? I mean, who were the big names in their kind of team around that, that time? Um, a few of them didn't play. Like, they had Rooney, but he didn't play. They had Ronaldo, but he didn't play. Um, but, you know, the likes of Carrick, um, Wes Brown, PK played that game, actually. Um that name. Yeah, he gave a few of the young. He gave a few of the youngsters a go. PK was a youngster at that time. Danny Simpson was a youngster at that time. Um, Nanny played. Anderson, he played before he got fat. And then, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a few. There's a few. There's a few good names. Um, I think Ferguson came out after the game and said, "Yeah, the young lads aren't ready. They won't be playing another game for a while." Excuse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so just looking back across, because your time to co- at Coventry wasn't the longest spell you spent at a club, but I think Ian Dowie, someone you, you've always spoke quite highly about. How did you find working with Ian Dowie and what was his kind of influence on, on you as a player? He was great. He always used to wind me up because um, he's, got, he's got two degrees. So <laughs> my nickname at, at Coventry from early was the student because I was the only one with a degree in the whole dressing room. And then Ian Dowie got wind and went, oh, student, yeah? He said, well, how many degrees you got? I said, well, just the one. And he was like, well, I've got two. So what does that make me? He <laughs> 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 used to wind me up like that. But he was, he was a great guy. He always, I remember actually getting back to the um, analogy of the bleep test. We did a 12-minute run on our first day of pre-season. And I was a bit, I was nervous first day of pre-season. We did a training session first in the morning. Um, and I remember giving the ball away in training and getting absolutely 
like torn into by Michael Doyle, who's the captain at the time. And it soon made me realise, right, like I need to step up a level there. I can't be even just giving a slight ball away and holding my hand up saying sorry and getting away with it. I've got to be on the money all the time. And um, I was built up nervous energy. And then in the afternoon, we did a 12-minute run. And they told us in the off-season, look, you're going to do a 12-minute run. Anyone who gets below 3,000 metres will have to be part of what they called the fat club. <laughs> so all throughout the summer, I was just making sure, right, I'm going to run 12 minutes. I'm going to make sure I get over 3,000 metres. And on the day, I was obviously spent a lot of energy, nervous energy, uh, at the morning training session where I got hammered by Michael Doyle. So confidence was maybe a bit low. Went out and did the 12-minute run. And I got bang on 3,000 metres. And I was worried I was going to get under, but so I had to push myself to get to 3,000 metres. Next morning, Ian Dowie's pulled me up to his office and said, what was that about yesterday? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you got three, you got 3,000 metres, but that's, that's not good enough. Like, we've come and watched you play. We know you're a fit lad. You should be blowing the majority of the other players out of the water and getting three and a half, touching 4,000 metres. And I was like, well, yeah, I just did my best. And he was like, well, you're in the fat club. <laughs> I was like, they killed me. He was like, but yeah, he's just like, he always took the time out. He used to call me on Tuesday nights and said, look, um, I know it's your day off tomorrow, but do you want to come in and do some work? So he always spent some one-on-one -on -one time with me. Um, he's just a genuinely nice guy who wants the best for his players. and. Um, I, I think he was a bit unfortunate to lose his job at Coventry to be honest with you there was a takeover and then with takeover people want to bring in their new new people and stuff so he's, he was very unfortunate um, but he's yeah he's a great guy great guy so do you think um, Ian Dowie leaving maybe was the start of, of the end for you over at Coventry because you got quite a big money move over to, to Huddersfield how did that come about what was the, the sort of trigger for you for you moving clubs um, yeah, in hindsight, I should have stayed at Coventry. But yeah, Chris Coleman came in and um, Chris Coleman always made a big deal about me not coming through the ranks at a, a professional club and me coming up from non-league. He always used to make a point of, of me coming up from non-league. So I was always kind of on the back foot with him, I think. And I was always the easy option to leave out. Um, yeah, and that didn't... It, it didn't quite work and I was worried that summer I knew Huddersfield were interested um, and I was worried that I would, I would keep being the easy one to be left out if I stayed at Coventry and I wouldn't play and you know that would have been my third year at Coventry and really if I needed to break through and start every game in the third year if I really wanted to, to kick on and I didn't quite feel that that was going to be the case. So I decided to drop down to, to Huddersfield um, I almost went back to Norwich, actually. Um, Norwich tried to sort of hijack the deal at the last minute. And in, yeah, in hindsight, I probably should have signed for Norwich. <laughs> and they ended up getting back-to-back -back promotions. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, I mean, at the time, I, I thought like hijacking a deal at the last minute when I kind of already agreed to sign for Huddersfield wouldn't have been right and wouldn't have sat with me morally. Um, so yeah, signed signed for Huddersfield, um, and it was a bit of a tough time at Huddersfield. I got injured. Well, I got swine flu actually really early on in the August. It was that time when swine flu was going around, so that really knocked me for six. And then I came back, and I was a bit weaker, a bit lighter. Um, didn't play very well. Form wasn't good, and ended up picking picking up a niggly thigh injury that just constantly went on for for eight months. I was. I would do all the rehab. It was just really a grade one tear in my thigh. I'd do all the rehab, come back. First shot I took, I feel my thigh go again. Um, so, yeah, back to rehab, four to six weeks, six to eight weeks of rehab. Come back, first shot I took, thigh would go again. And that went on for eight months. Yeah. Um, I ended up seeing a, a nerve specialist and I had two sessions with him or within an hour session, he he told me to get up and kick a ball 
and I was so scared. I just said, I, I kind of refused initially, actually. He said, no, I don't want to kick a ball. I know what's going to happen. Um, and he said, no, trust me, um, kick this ball. So I tentatively kicked the ball and didn't feel anything and then gradually got harder with it. And then almost broke down, gave him a big hug, broke down and, and said, thank you. Like, where have you been for the last eight months? <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, he's... Just touching on that, Simo, um, injuries are something which we, we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast, mainly because I'm the host. But with every guest that's come on, obviously, as your career goes on, you do pick up little niggly injuries. And how difficult was it for you? within that period because you're at a new club you want to impress there's pressure because they've paid a significant fee for you you've made the decision to go there what did you learn from that experience it was really really tough really tough because i was the only one that was injured there as well we had a great injury record um and i was a lot of the time i was the only one that was injured so i was on my own with the physios while everyone else was training doing, and as you say, doing the same rehab over and over again and it not working again and again and again. It was just mentally really, really tough. And, and again, added to that, like what you said, the, the pressure of a, a big price tag and, you know, I was signed, expected to fire them back up, back, back up to the championship and that wasn't obviously working. <laughs> so... It's yeah, it was it was a really, really tough time and I had to be really mentally strong to get through that really. Um Yeah. Now it's a re- really um interesting point that, that Luke Chadwick made, um, talking about when he was struggling with injuries at Norwich and at West Ham, how it kind of made him a better person rather than a better player. Um did you manage to take positives from that experience or or is it I suppose too sort of tough to to see past the the pain and the frustration of it all. Yeah, I, 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 it's tough to see past the pain of the frustration. To be honest with you, um, looking back at that time, it wasn't it wasn't a good time. Um, I'm not sure subconsciously, maybe I took something from that. But whenever from then on, whenever any of my other teammates were were having like injuries and um, continuous injuries then I would always be more sympathetic I guess to them and and made sure I went in the physio room every day to say hello to them to make sure they were still part of part of everything and feeling part of everything I guess subconsciously I did I did all that beyond so that was a positive but looking back personally at at that time it's hard to take many positives from that (laughs) yeah I know exactly what you're saying um look I'd love to go through all the different clubs that you've played for but I think in the interest of time I'd really like to discuss sort of coming towards the end of your career, LAPS sort of pops up, life after professional sport. Um, what inspired you to, to kind of come up with that idea and, and to run with it? Yeah, it was, um, I left Oldham in 2013. Um, Lee Johnson said he couldn't offer me a deal. And to be honest with you, I thought I'd be able to, uh, ever since dropping down from the championship to League One, I'd been desperate to get back to the championship. And I thought that summer I could potentially get a move back to the championship. Um, yeah, I was probably deluded looking back at the time. <laughs> but yeah, I, I went on trial at Blackburn and Doncaster and Sheffield Wednesday trying to earn deals um, who all said they were interested. And no deal came about. And whilst I was on trial at these clubs, I was turning down deals from League One and League Two clubs. Um, so I was stuck really the, the season then began I was without a club um, went back to the clubs that have offered me deals said yeah I'll, I'll sign for you now they were like no mate we're, <laughs> you're long gone we've signed someone else um, <laughs> so yeah months went past September went past October went past still without a club um, and then you start thinking right well I'm still living the same lifestyle because I, I was expecting to still be a footballer on similar, if not better, wages. Um, you know, what What if I don't get another club? Really, what am I going to do? Um, and even with sort of my university background and I was quite good with my money, I saved, saved a lot of my money. So I was, I was eating up those savings, still living the same lifestyle without any income. Um, 
and it got to a point where I was like, hang on a minute, like, what are you doing? Um, you need to maybe think of other avenues um, beyond football. And I, I just rang the PFA and said, look, I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit worried that I might need to find a, a new career somewhere. And, and their kind of stock response was, have you done your coaching badges? Uh, which I hadn't at the time. So I, I sort of enrolled to do my coaching badges. And um, I, I sort of kind of said, so I'm not really sure that I want to do that though. I'm not really sure I want that in my career. And they were like, well, we've got other courses. There's plumbing, electrician courses. There was an accountancy course and um, the sports journalism or media and broadcasting degree that you could do. And at the time I was kind of like, well, I've already got a degree behind me like i think i think i'd be able to get a job and a, and a pretty decent one um is there any way you can point me for that and they kind of said well we've got a recruitment page on the website have you looked at that so i went on that and there was five coaching jobs on there <laughs> and that was it um and then whilst i was on the website there was like a there's something called the transfer list that players who are out of contracts can add their names to for other clubs to see that they're out of contract and available so I went on that and there was there was about three three to four hundred other players on there in the exact same position I was. I like had a club previous year and still without a club. And it just struck me that that's a pretty large number and I could almost guarantee that 95% of those haven't got a degree behind them and, and perhaps haven't saved as well as I thought I did. My dad had a background in banking, so I was always going to be a saver. Um, and... Yeah, if, if I'm worried and I'm anxious and I'm having all these sort of negative feelings, these other three or 400 lads must be feeling that as well, if not more. Um, so, yeah, that, that was kind of my light bulb moment. Um, so I knew that there was an angle from a football perspective that there needed to be more support for scenarios like this. Um, players coming to the end of their football career um, and I started reaching out to my connections at Loughborough um, it's quite a sporting university and there's lots of people that have gone on to play professional cricket rugby athletics um, so I started reaching out to them and asking them what support there was in their sports and the answers coming back was pretty similar that there is some support and the support is getting better and better but there's still a long way to go and and in particular, I, I asked about routes into new careers, routes into employment. And they said, yeah, there's, there's pretty much nothing in that regard. Um, and it just so happened at the time I set up a LinkedIn profile and started connecting with anyone and everyone, um, trying to fish for someone to offer me a job. <laughs> um, and my co-founder of LAPS, um, who is now reached out to me, called Rob Steed, and he reached out because he he's an internal recruiter by trade and he got asked by uh, three of the different companies that he worked for to recruit sports people for them. Um, so he started connecting with sports people. And so we met and he, he asked what support there was. And I asked where he was coming from and like, why are the companies looking to recruit sports people? Cause sports people think that they're worthless away from sport. They, they don't, they don't realize the natural, attributes that they've got you know the commitment the desire determination competitiveness easily coachable learning from failure quickly all these attributes that sports people naturally have um to, to be professionals at, at their sport they don't realize that all of these attributes are really really transferable and can be utilized really well to be successful in in the working world um, and that's what, that's what he said these companies were after. And he said there was, in one company in particular, there was an Olympic rower that they hired into a sales role and he smashed every sales target and broke every sales record the company had within the first three months of being there. So they wanted to recruit more, more like-minded people like him, more people with his attributes. Um, so that was the real, another light bulb moment for me because I knew that, the sports people needed it, but I didn't know that they were desirable in the working world and from companies. So no, me and Rob kind of, kind of married ourselves together and, and came up with, came up with laps. Now that's brilliant to hear um, because I think it's, it's something we've touched on on the podcast and it's particularly with myself talking about that 
kind of transition out of the game, which is what lapses is, is kind of all about. Um, a big part of that is going to be the mental health side. Um, I think a lot of sports people do struggle when they, they come out of that bubble and maybe the support system and the network is no longer there. I know that's something you're quite big on as well. Talk to me a little bit about your kind of approach to that and how, how laps can, can kind of help people when they, they leave their professional sport, whatever it may be. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I should point out, because I've been pulled up on it before, uh, weirdly, um, when I've spoken about how laps can help with mental health, there's, there's, many, there's many reasons why people suffer mental health issues, many reasons. But their sporting career ending could well be one of those reasons. And that is how I think laps can help um, and assist with preventing mental health issues rather than curing mental health issues, if you know what I mean. Um, And I spoke with, I met with Sporting Chance, um, Tony Adams' charity. I went down and met them. And they... um, they sort of specialise in addiction and uh, and stuff, but they are they they've branched out into into sort of general mental health issues now, and they actually provide all of the PFA's um, assistance in mental health as well. They provide the helpline for the PFA, and um, I went down there and I, I I said to them, "Do you have any stats on where you think mental health issues arise from the sports people that you've seen?" And they kind of asked what I was getting at. And I just said, well, how many do you think that you've seen have, have all stemmed from um, the end of their sporting careers, which has kind of tipped them over the edge to have these issues? And, and they said around, they said they think probably around 70% of people that they've seen, their issues have, have sort of balled over because of the end of their sporting career. So that really, really hit home to me that what LAPS does and what we've created laps to do can really assist in in preventing people from boiling over in mental health wise we're trying to find them a new purpose beyond sport and the message is the earlier they find that the easier the transition is rather than coming to the end and then thinking right i need to find a new passion if they can they can find a new passion or an in, even just an interest alongside their sport then it makes the whole transition a lot smoother and and mentally it makes it a lot more easier to deal with. Yeah, a lot of it seems to be kind of surrounding building a new narrative for your life. So from the the kind of research I've been doing and from my own experience, your sort of narrative of your where you get your social gratification from when when football finishes or whatever sport it is, um, that seems to be you know, completely diminished. And then you're almost left in a situation where your self-identity doesn't match the circumstances. So I think from what you're doing there, it's sort of building new narratives for, for young sports people or sports people that have left the game. I think that's so, so important. How important do you think it is that sports people try to have these interests outside of the game? I think it's huge. And there's actually studies that have shown now that... Um players that have interests away from football and are pursuing other um, other things alongside football actually are actually performing better on the pitch. Um, there's studies to show that now. So there's no reason I always think back to, to youth team players and even looking at the youth team now, um, it, a lot of professional football clubs, the academy setups, their, their coaches are kind of sitting them down in a room let's say there's 20 players in a youth team squad, they're sitting down saying, look, one or two of you are going to make it. If you want to be that one or two, you've got to eat, sleep, drink football. Nothing else matters. You've just got to be solely focused on football. And that, for me, that's a really bad message. And, um, and a, um, I, I guess you could call it an irresponsible message as well, if, you, if I want to be really harsh, because they're basically saying that the two of them that make it, yeah, that's great. But what about the other eighteen? You just that they they were going to put all of their focus into football, but yet they still haven't made it, and you've you've sort of restricted their um, their development as a person. And when I see that youth teams have to do B Tech in sports science and nothing else, and they have to do that, and not only that, but they don't actually go into a college or into a um, 
into a school and interact with other people. No, we're going to bring a teacher out of the school, keep you all together. Um, it, it just doesn't sit right with me. I, I think I love the thought of the players going into a school, doing different subjects, interacting with different people, broadening themselves as a person. Um, and that's not going to be detrimental to their performance. It's really not. And like I said, studies have shown it will make, make their performance better. They'll become better, more rounded people, and that will definitely make them better players. Um, yeah. And I think that's something that has been spoke about, I know has been spoke about in the likes of the League Football Education and um, who do some great work. And I know that that's been spoke about in the Premier League also with the two of them. And I think the sooner some it can be implemented that change can be implemented um the better for 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 everyone the players and and the and the football clubs yeah for sure it's kind of get the, getting the football clubs to to look at that duty of care that they have for the people rather than just the players within their system i think that's such an important thing and it's something that keeps coming up over and over again i think the more we can have discussions about it um the more likely it is that we're going to get to a position where the system changes a little bit. Um, talk to me a little bit about management. What's it been like over at Chelmsford City? What, what, I mean, it, obviously it's a massively demanding role, particularly at that level. Um, how have you managed the kind of change in mentality going from being just a player to being a player that also manages the team? Yeah, it's a bit of a weird route in. I, I sort of made the decision this summer, um, well, sorry, the last summer, 2019, that um, I was going to drop out of full-time football. I, I, I wanted to stay at NK Dons for another year. I'd make no secret of that. I would love to have stayed for another year. Um, but as soon as I realised that wasn't, wasn't going to happen, which was kind of just before the season started, um, I, I kind of quickly made the decision that, that, that it was time to... Uh, move to part-time football and and embark on a new career alongside playing part-time and um, I knew I had some personal connections at Chelmsford so um, I contacted them and asked whether they'd be interested in, in signing me as a player um, yeah so I ended up signing as a player and everything was going great I was developing a new career alongside um, playing part-time football for them and the manager and the club or well, the club part company with the manager in the January and phoned me the next day and asked me whether I'd take interim charge. Um, yeah. And I just, I just said, yes, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll help you out. You've helped me out by giving me a part-time deal and helping me forge a new career. And um, yeah, of course, I'll help you out in the interim. And kind of, I never thought about becoming a manager, really. It, was, it all seemed too stressful. Um, yeah. I thought once I'd finished playing that, I'd love to have my weekends back and, and stuff like that. And but I kind of, the, the longer it went on as me being interim, the more, um, the more I began to enjoy it. Um, especially when you win a game, when you kind of formulate a plan and then the players buy into that plan and, and you end up winning the game, it, it gives you a real confidence boost and it gives you a real nice feeling that you want, that you want more of. Um, and I managed to find a way to, like you say, the, the toughest part is the fact they were my teammates sort of one, two months, three months earlier. So leaving, leaving your teammates out is the toughest, toughest thing, picking a team. And, and if you drop the player, I don't like the word dropped because I, I see games, every game's different and every player's different and players have different attributes that are really good and suited to certain games and other players don't. And um, that's, just, that's just how it is. So I, I, don't like, I don't like the word dropped. I just feel like managers now pick a team that they think is the best team to win the game. And, and, and thinking back now to, to when I've got dropped and stuff, maybe I, maybe I wish I'd known that. Um, so I didn't, didn't, didn't take it personally because it's not personal. I think most players at clubs, managers have signed them uh, and rate them and um, rate them as people. And when they, when they leave them out, it's, it's not personal. It's just what they yeah. think's best to, to win the game. 
how important is it for for you when you when you are kind of dealing with squads of that size how important is the communication like you say making sure that a player knows he's not been selected for whatever reason but he's still in your plans and how much have you taken from your kind of previous experience with managers to make sure you communicate properly yeah I um yeah something I always used to think if a manager hasn't pulled me and explained his decision then um I hated it I hated him for not doing it but I do now realize that it is really really tough to do there's not a lot of time to put say if you're making five or six changes it's really tough to pull five or six players and when you're pulling players out of the dressing room everybody knows you're pulling them out of the dressing room to to drop them so immediately they're they're not happy anyway um and it might and it might distract from um from the team and everyone's focus on the game if if you're doing that so it is really really tough to do but i have i have done it like i have i have not picked five players in a game that were playing the previous game and I have pulled every single one of them and and told them and explained the reasons um and i'll try to continue to do that but i do now realize that it is really really tough to do and again not to take it from a player's perspective, not to take it personally if, if you don't. No, definitely. Um, one last feature that we have on the show, Simo, I'm not sure if I mentioned it to you, show and tell. If you haven't got anything, we'll just edit this bit out. <laughs> but if you no, no, yeah, you did, you did. Um, what have I you got for me? What does it mean to you? Yeah, I've got loads of like shirts and stuff. Um, but yeah, the one thing, I'm just looking at all sort of my memorabilia here, but... Um, the one thing that probably does mean a lot, it's gone a bit flat, but it's my first league um, hat-trick ball. There, so this was against, I've written on it actually, this was against Chesterfield for Oldham when we won 5-2. Um, I scored a first half hat-trick. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was, that was kind of like a big, a big moment really. I think when a striker scores a, a hat-trick, I think it's... Um, I think it's it's quite special. Even even the very best strikers maybe don't don't score a hat trick in a game. So it's quite a, a quite a nice a nice moment to get one in the league. No, brilliant. It's a, a great one to look back on. I think, especially from where you'd come to and in that journey, yeah, I can see why that would mean so much for you. I mean, we're sort of out of time, Robbie. So um, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been brilliant to hear your kind of story, the different managers you've worked with and clubs that you've played for. And I, I wish you all the best with, um, with laps and with uh, moving forward at Chelmsford City. Thanks for coming on. No, thanks for having me, George. Really great to catch up, mate.